If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Highway to Health Podcast, hosted by Jeremy Quinby, provides guidance, quality resources, and inspiration for anyone seeking wellness in mind, body, and spirit. There's an episode that you should check out called The Value of Our Emotions, where Jeremy helps listeners understand the role emotions serve and what we can learn about our present state by staying attuned to them. Check out Highway to Health Podcast on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. The living condition is horrible. They give you an open building and then they say, you live here. Here's your space with a mat and pillow and that's it. You sleep and you share with other family and, and sometimes it's so crowded and there's no running water. There's no toiletry. The toilet is so disgusting and so it was horrible. Hi, you're listening to Healthcare for Humans podcast, the podcast dedicated to educating you on how to care for culturally diverse communities so you can be a better healer. This is about everything that you wish you knew to really care for the person in front of you, not just a body system. Let's learn together. Welcome to part one of our two-part series on the Khmer or Cambodian community. I see a lot of patients from the Cambodian community because Washington State, along with California and Massachusetts, has 50% of the total Cambodian population of the U.S. I also knew the Cambodian population had suffered because of what had happened in their country. But until I heard the stories that you're going to hear in the next two episodes, I did not understand the extent of it. Because within the Cambodian American population, 42% have been diagnosed with both PTSD and major depression. And when they want to share and find a way to heal, they're not able to. Over 90% of Cambodian Americans report worrying about the degree of understanding between themselves and their doctor. And I'm confident that's because many of us don't think about what happened in Cambodia and why they're in the United States now. From 1967 to 1975, Cambodia entered a period of civil war, followed by the rule of the Khmer Rouge Communist Party. The Khmer Rouge regime was ultimately responsible for the death of over 2 million Cambodians. That's 25% of the nation's population at that time. And people died through starvation, disease, and mass executions between 1975 and 1979. That's the war and genocide that people witnessed which resulted in a massive exodus of Cambodian refugees who were forced to flee the country after decimation of everything they had known. You're going to hear this story from two people in this series. James Heng, a Khmer interpreter and a member of the Khmer Health Board, and Jennifer Huang, also a medical interpreter and a leader of the Khmer Health Board. After listening to this series, you'll understand the trauma many Khmer hold that you likely never think about, just like I didn't. You'll hear why there's such a stigma around mental health and being open to a diagnosis of a mental health disorder. And you'll learn some nuances caring for this population, including how to talk about substance use, how to ensure you're using the right interpreter, and how to talk about other traditional practices. If you learn something from this episode, Please share this with one other person and go to healthcareforhumans.org and sign up. Here's James Hang. 
welcome to the show, James. Thank you. Thank you. Before we get started, tell me about yourself. I know you have a long history of interpreting, especially at Harborview, but tell me what brought you to this region, Washington, and where all you've worked. So, yeah, I was born in Cambodia in 1967, so I gone through the bombing of Cambodia during the Vietnam War, right? And also the Khmer Rouge regime. So I gone through all the horrible things, food deprivation. So in 83, my uncle and my aunt decided to flee Cambodia, seeking a refuge in the U.S., right? So they took me along. I have 10 siblings. I'm the oldest. And my dad lived in a way in the countryside and he's a mechanic he repaired like motorcycle and bicycle. And so he pretty much making ends meet to feed 10 children. But I mainly live in the city with my aunt and my uncle and my grandpa. So when they decided to escape Cambodia, they took me along. They hired a guy, paid for it, and then took me with them. And, and so we fled Cambodia to Thailand. And that was like late 1983. And when we got to Thailand, we were taken into custody by the Navy. And then they detained us for three days. And then in the evening of the third day, they came with the gun pointing at us and ordered into this small boat. Like 29 of us crammed into the small boat. Then they towed the boat into the ocean for like in the dark of the night. In the middle of the ocean, they just cut the rope off and let us drift. So we were abandoned in the ocean for 18 days with no food, no water. So we ran into pirates and pirate robbers, but they gave us food. Like they took our jewelry, money, whatever, and then they gave us some food and then we ate and then and we live off the rain. Occasionally it rains, so we collect rainwater to drink. And a pirate captured women in the boat, like six women were captured. And then two of my cousins died, like two and four years old, dying in the boat from starvation. Like on the 10th day, they died. Though, But on the 18th day, we got rescued by one of the fishing boats. They just came and threw the rope and towed us into the shore. Took them all day. But like early in the morning until... Late at night, like around 9 p.m., I think, before we got to the shore. So it was like all day. And then and that's how we got handed over to the U.N. And the U.N. took care of us and transported us to the refugee camp. And when I was in the refugee camp, my goal to come to the U.S. So I study a lot of English every day. My uncle in the U.S. here sent us some money so, so I can pay for the tuition. So I studied hard, studied English hard. So then I became an interpreter in the camp. And it was in. <laughs> I enjoyed doing it. James. What a story. Thanks for uh, sharing yeah, that. No problem, yeah. I know you, you said you're also part of the Khmer Health Board. Is that right? Yes, I, yeah. So Jennifer spoke to me about forming a Khmer Health Board a long time ago. So we didn't get a chance to do it until a few years ago. We get it started. And so we gather all the professionals from the community to join the board. And that's how it started. So we do health fair. We did educate the community about diabetes, about hepatitis and high blood pressure and all those things. Yeah. Yeah. It's called the Khmer Health Board. I think it's worth clarifying because people use Khmer, Cambodian. American call us Cambodian, but we call our native language or nationality Khmer. That we should use Khmer. And so that's why we all try to, to use the word Khmer, you know, try to <laughs> replace yeah, that uh, makes sense. the Cambodian. Yeah. Okay. For our listeners, let's start with the history because I don't think everybody is probably well-versed in the history of Khmer. Okay. So in the 10th to 13th century, I know I'm going way back okay. here, <laughs> the 10th to 13th century, the Angkor Empire, it was a big empire and actually extended past Southeast Asia and it had a lot of trade routes. It was very lucrative and that was where Khmer really thrived under that empire. Mm -hmm. 
after the 13th century, there was just a lot of unpredictable leadership and unpredictable government policies. And I'm sure there was up and down in that history where there was political stability. But in 1863, France established its proctorate over Cambodia until 1953. So a long time there where there was a lot of French influence in the country. In 1953, Cambodia gained its independence from France. And there was a prince that ruled the country as an autocracy until 1970. That's when the Khmer Rouge started forming. After seven years of struggle in 1975-ish, they overthrew the government and abolished the monarchy. This Khmer Rouge is, we should probably spend some time just talking about it just because how gruesome it was. And I know it's part of your history mm -hmm. too, but they essentially systematically eliminated the Khmer population in a reign of terror lasting from 1975 to 1979. And the statistics are horrible to look at because an estimated 1.5 million to 3.3 million Cambodians or 20 to 40% of the population died because they were executed, died of disease, starvation, forced labor camps. It was a horrible period in time for the history there. I think the Khmer Rouge's purpose was to start this revolutionary movement, and they wanted to erase all of the previous history and culture. It didn't end until 1979 when the Vietnamese came and ousted the Khmer Rouge, ending the reign of terror. And then 10 years, there was Vietnamese occupation, and then 20 years of civil war, unfortunately. I'm not sure if there's anything else to share about that, James. It's just really hard to hear. But I know it's such a big part of the history of how the Khmer people ended up in the U.S. as refugees. Yep. You describe it. That's the history. And there's the reign of terror. It really, people suffer, come often, and also family separation. That's like one of my friends, he came to the U.S. as an orphan. And he never realized that he had any sibling after 50 years. And then he found through Facebook, I found that he has a sibling, like other four siblings that are still alive. So it's very emotional. Yeah. yeah. I can hear it in your voice. I think it's just hard to even think about it. I just think about all the trauma that all the Khmer people who came here carry. Yeah. The things they witnessed escaping the Khmer Rouge, going to Thailand to try to escape. I think some people mm -hmm. did that as your family did. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's so unfortunate that we, the same people, and we turn on each other. We turn on each other. When the Vietnamese came in, invaded Cambodia, when they took over, that's the wild during with the Khmer Rouge. Like, they, they came in and people in the village told on my dad that my dad, some kind of Khmer Rouge, which he wasn't. And they took him. The Vietnamese took him, arrested him, and put him in a dungeon. He lived in dungeon, he, he was able to breathe through a small hole because a crack in that dungeon, you know, like that. So it's able to breathe through there. And, but he survived. He survived. Yeah. Yeah. In that context, I think that's where a lot of Khmer people left Khmer during that time and come to Washington. There's probably a few waves of it. 1975, when the Khmer Rouge took over, I think government officials, military officers came immediately. In 1979-ish, I think international support came. The U.S. Congress called for them as admission as a special group into the United States. And then in the 2000s, once people have established families here, sponsored family members came outside of the reign of Khmer Rouge. I read also that before being admitted, I think a lot of folks went to the Philippines for re-education or educating the customs. I did. I you went did. to the Philippines. I first they transport us from this one camp called Kawidang. 
how it done is the, the main camp. That's the, the first step that you get into that camp and you become legalized in the camp. Then you get to go interview, get permission to be reset or in the U.S. But before coming to the U.S., they either transfer you from Kawidan camp to another camp in the Philippines called transit camp. So you go to the transit camp, you'd stay there for a month, and then they will transfer you from the transit camp to the Philippines. And so that's where I was transferred to the Philippines. And we were happy in the Philippines. The Kawidan camp or the transit camp, the living condition is horrible. They give you an open building. And then they say, you live here. Here's your space with a mat and pillow. And that's it. You sleep and you share with other family. And, and sometimes it's so crowded. And there's no running water. There's no toiletry. The toilet is so disgusting. And so it was horrible. But when we were transferred to the Philippines, we were offered like a better living condition, like with a building, with a bedroom, with running water and appropriate space to shower and also we have more freedom where we can go to the mountain and enjoy the waterfall. So I was there for six months and I enjoyed life over there. I didn't feel like coming to the U.S. Oh, this is the best. It's a waterfall and we go enjoy the waterfall every day. And when I came here, I became culture shock because everything completely different. When I came July 6, 1987, I stepped my foot in Seattle. I miss the Philippines so much. Like I've become so depressed culture shock. You don't like can't go anywhere. You don't know, know your way around. And I went to school. I actually, when my uncle sponsored me here, he messed up my the year of birth. I was born 1967, but on the document, he put 1970. So when I came here, 87, so I was like 17 on the paperwork. So they fit me into the high school and I went to school. Like everything, like it's a culture shock. They're like, eh, well, I see the milk. Like, you know, I thought it was sweet. The pizza and the other thing, like, oh. Because you're accustomed to eating rice every day. So I feel hungry all day. But the first three months, it was a struggle. I wasn't happy being here, but gradually you get used to life here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hundreds and thousands of Khmer came to the U.S. It sounds like they all had similar experiences like you did. The family, community. I think they all went to the Philippines for the transit camps, right? Yeah. They're there for six months. So for the adult, they go to ESL class to learn English. And for me, they fit me into the schools called Hathras Preparation Secondary School or something like that. So they teach you way of life in the U.S., the history, how to use the toilet in the U.S., make sure you don't squat, just sit or whatever. But I end up being an interpreter for the whole entire school for the Khmer student in the school because my English, they tested me, so I score 100% on the test. I said, man, you can so they send me around in the school to interpret for other students. <laughs> what a story. <laughs> so I end up being a medical interpreter in the camp. You know, so I've been like mobiling in, in the camp, you know, doing interpreting for the Khmer yeah. community. Yeah. Yeah. I think you mentioned rice. I think it's a good time to segue to nutrition. I think rice gets a bad rap. Indian culture also, we eat a lot of rice. I think rice is the typical base of the meal for Khmer meals. It always comes back to this period of 1975 to 79, because I think before then, the Khmer Empire, I think they had like thousands of varieties of rice. They still compete in the International Rice Research 2 competition. <laughs> Different kinds of rice wins prizes. But I think rice is an important part of the culture. But I think between 1975 and 79, the Khmer cuisine lost some of that knowledge because a lot of people were starved. You were given rations or you're forced not to cook. 
so people didn't carry that forward to America? What do you think? We do have Khmer cuisine. We have this type of pho. It's pho, but very similar, but a different taste, different flavor of it's a noodle and we have vegetable, and, but the soup is a little bit different. Like we make into a, either a curry soup or the lemongrass soup and the broth to go with the noodle. So it called chop. That's like a Cambodian noodle soup. That's a popular dish in Cambodia when it comes to noodle. It's my favorite dish because they have variety of vegetable, vegetable that you can put in the bowl. So, so most of mine is put a little bit of a noodle and then mainly the vegetable that I put in there and then with the soup and the broth and then enjoy it. Yeah, noodle soup, vegetables, mm-hmm. then rice. Anything else with the... Cambodian uh, cuisine that we should know about. Uh, so we have the beef stick, like she's kebab, beef stick, then, and, and that's with some kind of pickle, like papaya salad or cucumber and, and, or carrot salad. We have a lot of dishes in Khmer. I used to go to the Phnom Penh noodle. That's the Cambodian style noodle, right? Uh, noodle soup. Yeah. Okay. Good. Part of counseling is also about substances, like smoking, alcohol. I was just looking at the statistics, and the World Health Organization said 2,041% of people in Cambodia smoked, and in 2020, about 20% smoked. That's pretty high, like one in five. Yes. Is that true also in Washington? Do you feel like many people still smoke? I still see people smoke, but I know people have friends who smoke, and until they see the effects of the smoking, like they see their own family member or friends or someone they know in the community die from lung cancer or liver cancer. And then they, like a wake-up call for them, so they decide to stop smoking. So for smoking nowadays, I think more and more people start to cut down. But drinking, you're talking about drinking, more and more people continue to drink. The new generation, they do drink in a higher rate because of I think it's social function. And when you join your social function, wedding, birthday party, get together, alcohol is like the main drink for the function. So I hang out with my friend, they all drink, they push me, force me to drink, but I know that it's bad for me. So I reject. And so I have a friend who drink heavy drinker, end up in a stroke, having a bad stroke. He on a wheelchair, he had pretty much paralyzed and it was hospitalized at Judah in a rehab for a month. He did a sweet 16 birthday for his daughter. He got permission from his doctor to come to his daughter's 16th birthday for two hours. Give two hours. And then he came in a wheelchair and 300 guests among all the friends. And they see that they witnessed that's the effect of the alcohol. That That's why he's in that wheelchair. And his message to all the friends that make sure you guys go check out. Because he had a high blood pressure and he continued drinking heavily. So nowadays in the community, people start to realize. Yeah, it's hard. Let's talk about culture. There's a lot of things to talk about culture. But one thing that stands out is that most of Cambodia are Buddhist, specifically Theravada. Buddhism. Yeah. There's so much we can talk about Buddhism, but tell me just a little bit more about the experience of the community with Buddhism, your own experience, whatever would be helpful for clinicians. So in the community, we have several temples here in the 
Seattle and Ken and Olympia. So we still go to the temple to celebrate events, special occasion like Halloween is called the ghost. But we go and once a year, we do a memorial celebration for the dead, like your ancestor. They believe that they have the spirit still out there. So once a year, they go to the temple and bring food and clothes and everything just offered to the spirit of the dead near your ancestor. So it's a big celebration. And also Cambodian New Year is mid-April. It varies April 15, 14 or around there. Once in a lifetime, they do a big celebration. Like I do for my parents. We go to the temple and we get the blessing and be thankful to our parents for what they have done to us, raised us, and their life to us. And so we and the whole family go there and we invite friends and neighbor and family and come and join the celebration. And the monk will chant and bless them, have a good health, a long life, healthy life. And like in 2016, my parents still live in Cambodia. So I went back home. I did that. So I become a monk for a week and we do the blessing for my parents to thank them for what they did for us and and to show respect for them and bless them good health and long life. So That's awesome. I feel like everybody should do that. <laughs> bless their yeah. parents for all they have done for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Let's transition to things to know in a clinic visit that's relevant. One is with naming. I think there's a lot of problems with probably medical record because of this because it's usually spoken and written in the order of last name, then first name, compared to typical American names. Is that right? Yeah. So in Cambodia, we usually the last name first, like they go with last name first when they, they call you instead of first name first. So that's the opposite. And also the spelling of the name, because in Cambodia, we tend to phonetically, we pronounce it, we use French pronunciation. For example, somebody named Pa, pa, like suppose a pa, right? But in Cambodia, they phonetically spell it p h a, pa. So when you come here, many people in the Khmer community, because of that, they will accept the way their boss at work pronounce the name. So they end up that's not their real name. At first, when you call your name like p h a, like your name is Pa, and someone calls you Fa, and then you sit there like, Fa, who is Fa? My name is Pa. But they realize people mispronounce their name, so they recognize that. Then they start to accept that. Yeah. Yeah. It suggests that it's important for us to clarify how you want to be called rather than assuming. And then you said the birth dates sometimes is messed up too. Yeah. So the birth date, we use day, month, and year. It's in order. But in the U.S., we use month, day, and year. So before coming here, it's just September 1st, they say one nine. 1970. But we come to America, they thought that January 9, 1970. So a lot of people ran into this kind of problem. Like, that's not my birthday because of the system here is it, it completely opposite. Okay. And clinic visits, sometimes I also see children interpret for families. From my understanding, when people came from Cambodia, a lot of people could speak Khmer, but could not write. Then the children learned English and no Khmer, so they interpret. How should I navigate that? Because I don't necessarily want the children to, but it seems like they've taken on that role for the family and everything else. Yeah. So my mom grew up in the countryside. She 
speak, but she does not write commands, does not read commands. And when interpreting using your family member to be the interpreter or grab a staff, like a front desk person who the community assume that person speak Khmer, but they speak broken Cambodian. For example, that happened at Pac-Med where this guy came to the clinic to see the doctor and that day I was busy helping other patients and so they end up grab one of the receptionists to interpret for him. And that reception, I know her too, and she pretty much came to the U.S. at very young age. So she grew up here speaking some Cambodian, okay? So they use her as interpreter. If the doctor understand the culture, because he came in for a scrotum pain, okay? And if the doctor understand the culture, he would not even think twice to ask the question, are you sexually active? Because he is a monk, right? So the girl that they are the interpret for the monk, you have to use the term appropriately. So she doesn't know how, so she ends up using like the F word, like literally use the F word. And so the monk look at her like, and then he calls and says, man, why do you have the girl interpret for so embarrassing? The way she's saying is so vulgar. So when they come to private part, I'm sure in, in your language, you know, we have appropriate way of, of using the word that's not offensive. So that's what happened. That's one of the situations. And we have other family member interpret for their mom. The doctor say, have you had hepatitis before? The kid know, have you had? But they don't know what the word hepatitis. So they speak half Cambodian, half Khmer, half English. They use the word hepatitis and to the parents say, so what hepatitis? Hepatitis. And the parents don't, don't know what, that's not, not Khmer word. I think it seems obvious because I think all clinicians should be trained to use medical interpreters. Just out of convenience, or maybe somebody's not available, sometimes family members are used. People should know not to talk about sensitive topics like sexual activity or drug use with family members, because sometimes it's just hard to interpret it. We have people like use the suppository. They supposedly use the suppository, and then patient end up going home and drinking it and came back to the clinic and, why are you throwing up? How did you use the laxative before the colonoscopy? That's how you use it. Oh, I drank it. I know. I think we also don't recognize the importance of making sure we talk about every single part of prescribing medication or talking about illness because they leave the visit or the hospital. They go to the pharmacy that sometimes doesn't have the instructions in Khmer. Then they go home. There's nobody to ask. Maybe a family member who is there and they say the wrong thing. So important to talk about like from the first step to the last step of, yes, this is a suppository meeting. This is where you insert it. This is how often you need to. And then let's check back in because it's important to check that understanding or ask them to repeat back what to do. Okay. I want to also talk about just belief around health and experience with Western medicine. Are there any traditional medical practices that we should know about? Like cupping, pinching, or rubbing? Do mm. people still do that? Yeah. Can you explain what those he was are? still doing it. My brother's still doing it. He was sick last week and he did the coining. He's an uh -oh. electrical... Now everybody's going to know your brother does it. <laughs> <laughs> so he was sick last week. He's an electrical engineer. You know, doctor, like, I did the coining. <laughs> he get used to it. And so coining is the most common practice in Cambodia or here too, especially the elderly, like my sister-in-law, Grandma, she's 84. Every time she gets sick, she wants coin. 
And after coining, she gets, she feels better. And only one particular person that she wants to give her coining because everybody else said, oh, your hand not strong enough. Coining you just a quarter and you rub on oil on your skin and you just rub it with a lubricant. And they have a certain area that they coin, they coin on the, the shoulder here and then the back and you know, the between your spine. Those two big muscles. My mom used to pinch me down and coin me. And when I was sick in Cambodia, it's a torture. It's a torture. My dad and my mom would pin me down and coin me and I scream to the top of my lung. But after that, I feel better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people still do it though in Washington itself. People continue to do it and pinching too, you know. My dad, he loved to do that. He loved to pinch his between here, right? When he gets sick, he that dizziness, they pinch it as they feel but And he also loved to do cupping, my dad. He cupped until he got a big bump on his forehead right here. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So there's some effects. So if you notice anything on the skin, Schrimberg yeah. could be from some of these other alternative treatments. Yeah. I think people also believe uh-huh. things are hot or cold. People would say, go back to about the coining, right? They say your body carries too much air. Yeah, too much air in your body. So you coin it up to alleviate, to relieve that air, to balance out. So, so you coin to release that the air from your body so you feel better because the hot and cold balance. But based on when I was looking at cross-cultural healthcare program, I think her name is Iras and Gupta. She, one of the director over there, said, based on the study at UW, pointing, you know, why people feel better? Based on the study, is it coining? Because you increase the blood flow. After coining, increase the blood flow into your body. That's why you feel better. And I come to think about, yeah, it's true. Because when you rub on your skin and you dilate your blood vessel, right? And so it increases the circulation and make you feel better. But when people back home, people believe that, oh, after coining, the redder, your skin, they say, the more effective the coining is. I want people to know because even if people don't tell you, because if a clinician doesn't understand this, they're just not going to tell you. They're going to do it anyway. But it's helpful to bring it up and say, do any of these things. And if you are, be careful. Don't do it so hard. You're getting skin wounds or bumps. Yep. Yep. It can't be helpful for some people, but just be careful. And here's also medicine if you want to take it on top of that. Yeah. If you're having exactly. pain in your neck or back yeah. pain. Yeah. And herbal, we're talking about herb too. People still use herb. They, you know, people here, they say they order some kind of herb from Cambodia, say some kind of healer from Cambodia, they make a discount herb that will treat diabetes. Yeah. I've been with patients, they just show me the bottles mm-hmm. and I have no idea what to do. They're like, I'm taking all of this. <laughs> yeah. Talking about beliefs. With some people, they'll worry that when we're doing a lot of blood draws, we're taking blood away and not replacing it. I find that sometimes people don't get labs. They don't share that worry with you. Do you think that's also still common? I think historically that's been true because people thought it's painful, it'll make them weaker, and it's just destroy red blood cells. Yeah, especially people, they think that they are not low blood count or they think that they're anemic and you draw more blood and then it make them more anemic. They don't understand that your body replace whatever we make your blood. But we, we do we do have people, we do have patients, and sometimes we're talking about high blood pressure, right? So people thought that high blood pressure, that you have too much blood in your body. That's why it causes high blood pressure, right? So 
they would uh, go get blood draw will help with my blood pressure. So it's completely misunderstand what it is, right? We probably need to spend more time explaining illnesses or high blood pressure because sometimes I just say hypertension or high blood pressure and assume that we're talking about the same thing. So I think the best way to explain to a patient that make them understand you're talking about a water hose, right? Water hose, you turn on the water too strong, the pressure in the hose is getting tight and can explode on the balloon. You put too much and then it's explode. Sometimes I explain to people like they understand, but you said the word pressure, like they don't get the concept until you give them example of something like a balloon and then explode. So your blood vessel, same thing is too much pressure, explode like a balloon. They say, oh, it's like that. You know, that's, yeah. You know, it makes me think maybe take that step further Then everybody should use examples or metaphors and analogies when using these terms or something everybody knows because that helps people understand the concept of what's happening. Another thing I brought up is that I think a lot of people believe when we prescribe medication, it's temporary. I have high blood pressure, so if I take medication until the bottle's empty, then it'll be done with afterwards. Because high blood pressure is a symptom. So the most common thing I see in people talk about it that I don't feel sick, so I don't need to take medicine. I feel fine. So that's why some of them, they decide not to take medicine. They don't understand how the blood pressure affects them until they have a stroke. Then they say, oh, how it is. So that's how the, the habit people form back home. And only when I get sick, I go see the doctor. They don't see this uh, preventive care. Or some people, they say, oh, I don't want to go see a doctor. I go see a doctor and then tell I have this, that, this, that, that make me worry. So they just don't want to, to hear the truth, right? Yeah. The last piece that I want to talk about is the emotional health of the community. Because we talked about the collective trauma of living through the Khmer Rouge, coming back and be accustomed to American culture, seeing family members struggle or die, go through starvation, a lot there. But I don't think we talk about the mental health of the Khmer population that much. I think there's some shame to talk mm. about mental health. Yes. What's the best way to talk about it? Or how do we bring this up? How do we make sure people are supported in their healing? So people don't want to reveal that they have mental because it's embarrassing to be exposed that you have mental problems or you have mental issue. Because when you have mental issue, people in the perceive you as like you are a crazy person. When people assume that you are a crazy person, then they feel embarrassed and, and people don't want to associate with them. Because mental health, it's, it's a taboo. Yeah. So people will look down on you. And in the past, like when you have mental health, problem, people will chain you back home because you have mental problems, you bother people and then you disturb people. So people don't want to talk about it, scared to talk about it, about mental health because they don't want to have people perceive them as one of crazy person. So as clinicians, what are places we can refer or connect people with in the community that will be helpful for their health? So the main organization in the community Right now, it's the Asian Counseling and Referral Services. Thanks so much, James. It's been great talking to you. Thanks for taking the time. Okay, you're welcome. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the Healthcare for Humans podcast. I hope 
with this episode, you have a better understanding of what the Khmer community has been through, and you learn some nuances of how to take care of this population. Stay tuned for the second episode of the series, and if you like this episode, share it with one other person, and go to healthcareforhumans.org and sign up to join our community. See you soon. This podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not represent any of the participants' past, current, or future employers unless explicitly expressed as so. Always seek advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with regards to your own personal questions about what medical conditions you may be experiencing. This Healthcare for Humans project is based on Duemish land and makes a regular commitment to real rent Duemish. If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Highway to Health Podcast, hosted by Jeremy Quinby, provides guidance, quality resources, and inspiration for anyone seeking wellness in mind, body, and spirit. There's an episode that you should check out called The Value of Our Emotions, where Jeremy helps listeners understand the role emotions serve and what we can learn about our present state by staying attuned to them. Check out Highway to Health podcast on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com.